Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Buddhist Studies. I'm Connie Kasser, and today we're going to be talking with John Powers about his book, The Buddha Party, How the People's Republic of China Works to Define and Control Tibetan Buddhism. John is Professor of Religious Studies at Deakin University in Melbourne, Australia, and he has authored 17 books and more than 80 articles. John, welcome to the show. Thank you, Connie. I'm glad to be here. Um, John, I'm wondering if we could just start out um, by having you tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay. Um, Well, I grew up in Cape Cod, Massachusetts. I went to Harwich High School. I uh, went to Holy Cross for my undergraduate, where I was a philosophy and religion double major. I got an MA from McMaster University in Indian philosophy, and then I did my PhD at University of Virginia in Buddhist studies. And after that, I worked for several years in the U.S. at uh, several uh, several colleges. And then I got a a position at Australian National University, where I worked for about 20 years. And uh, now I've been a deacon for almost exactly one year. That's great. Um, So how did did you get into Buddhist studies and um, and Tibetan Buddhism in particular? Well, my mother told me a story once that um, I had thought that my interest started when I was about 12 years old, when I started reading, uh, I started getting interested in philosophy around that time, and I read Nietzsche, and I read Plato, and I uh, liked Heidegger and a number of other people, and then I uh, read D.T. Suzuki's book, uh, Zen Buddhism, and that got me interested in Buddhism, and I started reading uh, a number of books on Buddhism and getting more and more interested in it. But my mother told me that when I was four years old, I went up to the attic where my father, who was in uh, the Marines in uh, China at the end of the Korean War, my father brought back a lot of things from China, uh, including scrolls and uh, paintings and things like that. And um, I went through the stuff that he brought back, and the only thing that apparently caught my interest was a small Buddha statue. And when she told me that, I remembered that I had this on my bureau. I hadn't really remembered where it started, but um, I guess I got it when I was four years old, and I had it on my bureau uh, all during my teen years and everything. So my mother, who was a Catholic, by the way, told me that I must have been a Buddhist in a past life, and that was why I um, <laughs> latched onto the Buddha statue and, and chose that among all the other things. So apparently my interest goes way back. And, and so, so what about Tibetan Buddhism specifically? How did, how did you get into, into that world? Well, there's a story there too. Uh, after I graduated from Holy Cross, I didn't really know what I was going to do. And I certainly had no sense that I might become an academic. So I worked in marketing in Boston for a couple of years. And I decided that I was missing abstract thinking and uh, having discussions about things other than you know mortgages and making money and so forth. So I enrolled at McMaster in their MA program, but really never thought of an academic career. I was just really thinking of an MA and then getting out after that. But along the way, I decided that I enjoyed teaching, but I really had no interest in Tibet or in Tibetan Buddhism. All that I had ever heard about it was basically what uh, European Orientalists said about it, that it was the lowest degeneration of the pure Dharma of the Buddha. 
And I didn't really buy that entirely, but everything that I'd heard about it didn't interest me at all. And I really had no sense that there was anything worth looking at there. So one day I was with some friends. We were backpacking in northern Ontario. And one of them, the guy with the car, mentioned that the Dalai Lama and the Karmapa, the 16th Karmapa, were going to be in Toronto at a Buddhist church, and he wanted to go. And I and the other the other guy really had no interest at all in it, um, but he had the car, so we ended up going. And so um, when we went there, there were these two guys chanting in Tibetan, accompanied by a bunch of other guys chanting in Tibetan, and... I expected to be completely bored and was thinking that I was sort of going to wander around the neighborhood maybe and check out that area of Toronto. Um, but I found myself being fascinated by it. Uh, there was this presence that these two guys had that was unlike anything I'd seen before. And I noticed that even the children there were, there were probably about 30 or 40 children. Nobody was fidgeting. Nobody uh, was moving around. Uh, people's attention was fixed on these two guys. And, um, I decided that I needed to find out more about how they got to be that way. So when I went back to Hamilton, where, where Master was, I talked to a friend who was married to a Tibetan and asked him where I could learn more about Tibetan Buddhism. And he said that I needed to go to University of Virginia because they had lamas there. And the program had been set up by Jeffrey Hopkins um, and by the Dalai Lama. And so you could actually study Tibetan Buddhism uh, largely in sort of a, in a more or less traditional format in an American university, and you could hang out with llamas. So that seemed like a good idea. Uh, so I finished my MA master, and then I uh, enrolled at UVA and did my PhD there. Wow. But it was totally coincidence. <laughs> uh, none of this has ever been planned. Uh, Chuck Prebish uh, has, is a project going now where he's trying to collect the autobiographies of some uh, Buddhist scholars. And when I was reflecting on my life, I realized that none of the important things that have happened to me have been planned. They've all been things that have happened to me, and I've reacted to them. Oh, wow. That that sounds like a great project, like a kind of, uh, uh, I don't know, Buddhist studies namtar collection. Exactly. Well, <laughs> he was concerned that a lot of um, uh, prominent people have died in the past few years, and we don't really know much about them aside from their works. And so, you know, people will sort of share stories about people they know, but in terms of actually having a sense of what they were like as people, we really don't have that. So the goal of the project is to preserve people's stories before they pass away, and then future generations will have some background into what sort of people they were, what got them into the field, and um, what their orientation was. Oh, that's very yeah, cool. Yeah, it's a great idea. That's very cool. I'm, <laughs> I'll be excited to read yours. <laughs> uh, I think mine's all that exciting. But very serendipitous, so that's yeah, nice. serendipitous. I think there's um, some some pretty good stories in there, and uh, at least I I thought they were interesting. So I I I, I want to talk about the book. I'm just curious, where did this book come from? Um, how how did you come to write the Buddha Party, or how did this book come into existence? It's an interesting question. When I first started in uh, studying Buddhism, uh, and now particularly Tibetan Buddhism. I assumed that what I would be doing and what I planned to be doing was primarily looking at philosophical texts, um, translating them, uh, analyzing them, uh, commenting on them, and that sort of thing. I was particularly interested in what I saw as intersections between Asian philosophies, and in this case, particularly Buddhist philosophy, and things that were happening today in Western philosophy, where I thought that Buddhist philosophy would have something to add to ongoing discussions. And I never had any sense that I would be involved in political things, that I would have Chinese officials protesting things that I wrote or walking out of my lectures or things like that. Uh, but that's exactly what happened. And 
part of it is that Tibet has become so politicized that if you work in Tibet, you almost inevitably get drawn into the political aspect of it. So uh, when I first came to Australia, I was the only academic who had a full-time position in Australia who worked on Tibet. So I would be contacted by news organizations and politicians and human rights organizations for comment and information. And all I can say is, I don't know, I'm just translating, you know, Buddhist philosophical texts. <laughs> and so I found that it sort of became part of my job to keep up with what was going on. And I had a lot of insight because I had spent a lot of time with Tibetans during my graduate work. And then during my uh, year of field work in India and Nepal, I spent a lot of time with Tibetans, talking to them, finding their stories and so forth. So it was kind of a progression that I hadn't planned um, that just kind of happened as a result of circumstances, as a result of my position at an Australian university. And um, then along the way, the propaganda uh, project in particular became the most important one because what I found was that the propaganda is really at the center of everything that's happening in China with respect to Tibet. And it influences every aspect of life in Tibet uh, and in Tibetan areas. But it also has pervasive influence in China. The, the propaganda narrative regarding Tibet is extremely important to Chinese. It's a part of their identity. It's something that they take very seriously. And it's something that has a, it's part of a regime of truth. It's so deeply embedded that it's common sense. Uh, even the most outrageous or even ridiculous ideas are seen as obvious by most Chinese uh, and unquestionable. So I decided that it was a project that really needed to be done, and nobody was really doing it. There, there were some human rights groups that were looking at uh, sort of at some of the propaganda narratives, but they weren't doing the kind of in-depth analysis that I thought really needed to be made, particularly looking at the epistemology of propaganda. So that was a lot what, of what this book is about, is looking at the, at the, the strategies of propaganda, the techniques, um, deconstructing the discourses in, in propaganda, but also providing context so that people could evaluate the claims being made within the propaganda texts of China. Yeah, and I, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that, um, about the, the way you set that up in the book, because one of the things that you mentioned is that um, the, the propaganda that appears to be widely believed among Han Chinese doesn't really seem to be persuading Tibetans. So I'm wondering if you could talk about why why that's going on. Well, that's one of the interesting things that I found is, first of all, the fact that even the most um, bizarre propaganda uh, claims are, are widely accepted by Han. I, I've seen people encountering really ridiculous claims uh, about the Dalai Lama, about Tibet and so forth, and not having any sort of apparent qualms about them. And uh, on the part of Tibetans, the uh, messages largely uh, are completely counterproductive. That is, the more the propaganda is imposed on them, the more resolute they become in the rejection of that propaganda. And that was one of the really interesting things for me, um, because when you look at what people say about propaganda sort of, you know, in the popular sphere, there's a sense that propaganda is extremely powerful, that it's virtually impossible to resist. And what I found in my research is that that's not at all true. And the more you read about work on propaganda, that is a psychological work, sociological work, and so forth, the clearer it becomes that propaganda primarily works on people who want to believe. 
So for people who perceive a message as coming from an outgroup, as being a message that's aversive to them, uh, really no amount of propaganda, no amount of coercion is going to make them willingly believe uh, the propaganda message. And that was one of the more heartening things for me, that while propaganda may be pervasive and while it may have a lot of influence on society, it really only primarily works on people who want to believe it. Wow. I mean, it, it's one of the things that I found really fascinating reading this book. I, I first started reading it uh, not too long after last year's uh, U.S. presidential elections. Mm. And uh, <laughs> just just thinking about propaganda and all the things that we're hearing in the news now. Um, I mean, some of some of the some of the things that you're saying about propaganda and people believing things if they want to believe them and not believing them if they don't want to believe them. Um, you know, it sounds pretty similar to things that are going on in the United States. It's absolutely right now. true, and I think that if people want to understand why people believe the things that they believe, again, even outrageous or ridiculous things. If you read this book, I think you'll have a better understanding of the techniques of propaganda and when and uh, when it works and when it doesn't work and why. Uh, and as I look at the things being said in the United States now, uh, I can see the playbook of Chinese propaganda coming up over and over again, which is not actually surprising because Chinese propagandists learn their trade and got their techniques largely from uh, propagandists in the, in the United States. So they largely follow mm. that same playbook. Yeah, um, it's, it's, it's eerie, the similarities. But, but propaganda is largely <laughs> the same everywhere. It, it follows the same sorts of moves, and it does the same sorts of things. And what it is really about, in the words of Edward Bernays, is manufacturing consent. That is, it's trying to get people to believe in a certain way. And it does this largely through dishonest means through murky epistemic moves, through um, suggestion, through innuendo. And you can see this very much uh, in what's going on in the United States now. Uh, and it's also very tribal. That is, you know, people who identify, with a identify themselves as having a particular label uh, will tend to believe even the most outrageous statements from other people who self-identify as having that label. Uh, so, like, for mm -hmm. instance, the, the Pizzagate thing where people believe that Hillary Clinton was <laughs> running a sex slave ring in a pizza parlor. Um, I've heard that mm -hmm. InfraWars um, has claimed that the Democrats have a sex slave colony on Mars and that people actually believe this. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's just amazing uh, in one sense that people will come to believe this. But um, I see this over and over again in, in, in U.S. public life that people who claim to belong to a particular group, when they make a statement, people who also claim to belong to that group will believe it, even if it's counter to their own interests. You can see this, for instance, with health care and, you know, the debates over mm -hmm. healthcare, the debates over taxes and so forth, that uh, people who claim to hold, you know, to believe in a particular ideology, to belong to a particular group, are making claims and other people who make, who will be harmed by this will buy into this even though even a sort of cursory examination of the facts would lead them to, to dismiss it. Mm -hmm. So again, if you read this book, you'll see I mean, why that happens. It won't probably change anything, yeah. but at least you'll understand it better. Understanding's good. Um, I mean, one of the, one of the things that I, I laughed at when reading this book is in the conclusion, you, you mentioned that um, uh, you, you described the, the shock that some Chinese students in Australia expressed that when you were traveling around the Tibet Autonomous Region, people were not spontaneously bursting into song and dance. <laughs> this was actually at Harvard. 
Oh, this was at Harvard. Oh, I used to talk at Harvard a few years ago, and I said a number of things that would have rocked the worlds of the of the Chinese students who were there. There were probably about twelve students from mainland China, and uh, after the talk, of all the outrageous things that I had said, you know, things that were counter to their propaganda narrative, the one that bothered them the most was an offhand remark that I made that I had traveled all over Xinjiang and Tibet and other minority areas in China, and I'd never seen any of the happy, carefree minorities depicted on Chinese television screens, you know, erupting spontaneously into song and dance. And so they asked me, where did you go? And I said, well, I went to Xinjiang, I went to Tibet, you know, I went to Gansu and so forth. And they said, and there was no singing and dancing? I said, no, they don't really do that. (laughs) And their final conclusion is I just must, must not be very observant. I love that. Well, and then, and then you also said that, um, a lot of people asked, who was paying you right. to yes. produce this? That's a very common response for people who work on Tibet. Who's paying you? Every time I go out to lunch or dinner with, with Tibetans, uh, with Tibetan <laughs> representatives, I always end up footing the bill. Whereas the Chinese embassy always pays for, for meals or for coffee or whatever when they when they uh, talk to me. So uh, I'm doing much better with the Chinese than I am with the Tibetans. Well, and you and you also mentioned that... Um, you you've received a lot of unsolicited material um, from from the PRC uh, every month. Yeah, uh, I get uh, a package every month uh, from the Chinese embassy in Australia of of new propaganda. Every yeah. month, you and I as I was working on my book, I was I received boxes of it, at least five or six boxes full of, of propaganda materials. Wow! So has has there been any change in that since this book? Um, came out within the last, you know, almost almost. I uh, know they're still sending me stuff. Um, since I don't live in Canberra okay. now, I, I'm not near the embassy, so they used to send things over to my uh, PO box when I was at Australian National University, and I don't think they know that I've moved. Um, so they may be sending things still, but I'm not receiving it anymore because I'm at a different university. But all the time I was in Canberra, they were sending me things on a regular basis. Wow. Um, what about what about reactions from Tibetans who have um, read this book or read other other work or are familiar with with the work that you're doing? What reactions have you gotten from? Well, them? they're mixed because you know, as an academic, I'm not uh, I'm not a propagandist myself, and I'm not an activist, and I've scrupulously avoided joining any Tibet activist groups uh, because I think that I'm much more effective as a commentator if I am independent. So my book is really looking at what people are saying, uh, analyzing the background and so forth. So I say, you know, when I, when I analyze Chinese propaganda, the Tibetans are happy about that. But when I analyze Tibetan uh, exile propaganda, they're not so happy about what I say about, about their propaganda because mm-hmm. uh, their propaganda to them isn't propaganda, it's truth. Uh, so I'm in a strange <laughs> position because, uh, say, what I found in looking at, at material about Tibet the Chinese are heavily emotionally invested in it. Uh, Tibetans are heavily emotionally invested. British tend to be heavily emotionally invested in Tibet. But as an American, I feel that it's not really part of my personal story. Uh, the CIA did have some interactions with Tibetans um, during the Cold War, but this is something that I didn't even know about. Nobody knew about it until some recently declassified papers came out. So I don't really see myself as somebody born in America and now living in Australia as having a strong emotional response either way. So I'm really trying to figure out what people are saying, what the historical background is, what's the, um, you know, what you can say about these claims and counterclaims and so forth, and and trying to analyze them and, and basically to 
present information for people to make their own decisions. I don't really draw much in the way of conclusions in my books. I'm really primarily analyzing things. So um, that's really what I see myself as doing is providing information and analysis and leaving it up to others to decide what sort of decisions they want to make about it. Yeah. And one of the things that really strikes me about this book is just the amount of resources that that you have looked at in order to produce this book. I mean, there's just a ton of information in here. Um, and I think I think it does a good job of, of allowing people to draw their own conclusions based on the information that you've got. Well, thank you. And I, I um, provide a lot of links, too. So if people want to look at more and see what's actually being said or get the context, there's a lot for people to explore and to see more about what people are actually saying. Now, having said that, a lot of it is very monolithic, so you don't really need to invest a lot of time in order to find out what's being said. But one of the things that I was trying to do was to show that even the most outrageous statements that I found are not things in isolation. That is, I didn't just pick out the most outrageous things. I was primarily trying to, I, actually, there were a lot of even more outrageous things that I didn't put in the book because they were sort of outliers. Uh, so I tried to use the things that were really sort of in the middle of what uh, of the discourses that were being produced in China. Yeah, it seems like there's a lot of repetition of of these similarly outrageous claims. Yes, there's, there's some that do stand out. Uh, my personal favorite is uh, during the 2008 demonstrations, which were the largest in the history of the Tibetan region, I was actually in China, traveling across China and following the news, uh, which was unusually being reported in uh, in Chinese news sources. So people were actually seeing images of Tibetans protesting all over the Tibetan plateau, which is very unusual in the PRC. And as, as they were doing this, of course, they had to provide counter narratives within the propaganda in order to show people that what they were seeing wasn't what was really happening. And so uh, the, the, all propaganda needs a villain. That's probably the most important core element. And the, the main villain, well, the only real villain for the PRC is the Dalai Lama. And on the English language channel, CCVTV9, they were producing the sort of standard stories about him trying to split China and being a surf owner and things like that. But on the Chinese language channels, they had some amazing things going on. The best one was a claim that he was a terrorist and that he, he had set up terrorist training camps in northern India. And best of all, <laughs> that he wasn't just sort of sponsoring these. He was actually a hands-on terrorist. Sort of, you know, picture Che Guevara in, in Buddhist monk robes with a bandolier <laughs> and, a, and a beret. And he was, they claimed that he was actually showing, uh, teaching young monks how to do hand-to-hand -hand combat, uh, garroting, and uh, munitions use. Wow. He, so he was, he was personally on the ground. Yes, on the ground media, training fellow terrorists to, you know, go off into China and, and wreak havoc. Wow. And he was 76 at the time <laughs> and in poor health. He had been hospitalized several times that year. None of that was mentioned, of course. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and that's one of the things that, I, that one of the themes that I looked at in the book was, was the, the trope of the Dalai Lama as villain, which is interesting because again, all propaganda needs a good villain. And the United States, for instance, has had a whole series of really good ones. You know, they had the Nazis during World War II. They have bearded, scowling jihadists who want to behead people now and so forth. But all China really has is the Dalai Lama, who's an elderly monk who travels the world telling people to be nice to each other. Uh, so, <laughs> so he's not a very good villain. And I, 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 um, I, I, just, I describe him as sort of a wily e. Coyote sort of villain. 
he has mm-hmm. these elaborate plots to split China, but the Chinese people are constantly assured that uh, they'll never work, that um, he's doomed to failure, and that no matter what he does, he's going to be, um, uh, the Chinese people and the Tibetan people in particular are going to resolutely oppose anything he does. So he's not a very scary villain. Uh, you know, he smiles a lot. He tells people to be nice to each other. And even if he's, you know, plotting against China, it's completely ineffective. So nobody that I've met in China is actually afraid of him. Uh, nobody, <laughs> you know, they, they see him as sort of like, you know, they, they think he's evil and, and bad and everything. But they, he's he's really not a very good villain for, for propaganda. He's He's bad, but he's 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 not bad enough to to really cause any any harm to the unity of. of yes, China. bad enough is a good one. It's like Boris bad enough in the Rocky and Bullwinkle. Uh, mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> in this case, he's, he's uh, Dalai Lama, not bad enough. Well, so I mean, thinking about the Dalai Lama and and the Chinese um, government's involvement in you know the the so called Dalai Click, um, and and. You know, thinking thinking beyond that, and, and the the tulku system in general um, in in Tibet. I mean, China has has famously issued a, a law saying that no no lama can reincarnate without the express consent of the Chinese mm-hmm. government. Was was that stuff that that you were hearing while you were doing your research? Yeah, and it's going on now. Um, and the, uh, about six months ago, the Chinese government issued an official list of tulkus. Uh, that is people who are who are real tulkus, real reincarnate lamas, and the Dalai Lama is not on the list because the official law says that only people who live in China who are uh, directly uh, subservient to the Chinese Communist Party can be tulkus. So any tulku who lives outside of China, and that includes tulku lineages, for instance, from Mongolia, from India, from Bhutan, from Nepal, and so forth, that have been oh, going wow. for centuries. The, the law is so comprehensive in its wording that it would include tulku lineages that have always existed in other countries. Uh, but again, from the, what the law says is that only those tulkus who are living in China and are under the control of the Communist Party and subject to its regulations are actually tulkus. So the Dalai Lama is <laughs> not a tulku. Uh, and the other thing they claim, they claim sole uh, government over, they claim uh, exclusive uh, power over the tulku system, which means that only tulkus in the future who are recognized by China can be tulkus. And in order to do, in order to get that recognition, a tulku who wants to reincarnate has to go to the local uh, public security bureau and fill out forms to reincarnate and to get permission from a Chinese Communist Party official who's not a Buddhist and doesn't believe in reincarnation. Okay. Hmm. Um, so, so, I mean, theoretically then, because the Dalai Lama is not a tulku and because he cannot go and fill out this paperwork, um, then presumably um, China will not attempt to appoint their own Dalai Lama. After after the fourteenth, you would Dalai think Lama? that if you were expecting this to make any sense, but you would be wrong. <laughs> They've made it very clear that after the Dalai Lama uh, dies, they will in fact reinc- uh, choose another Dalai Lama. And in nineteen ninety five, they arrested the um, the choice for the second most prominent reincarnated Lama, the Pension Lama that the Dalai Lama made. Uh, they put uh, this was a boy who was six years old at the time, and they put him under. They arrested him. Uh, along with his family, and none of them have been seen since. Uh, and then they mm-hmm. uh, forced Tibetan Buddhists to appoint another pension lama, uh, a state-approved pension lama, and they made it very clear that they intend to use that 
Urzat's Pension Lama to choose an Urzat's Dalai Lama. And the Tibetan exile government has also made it very clear that they will choose a Dalai Lama who has been born outside of China, uh, possibly in a mm-hmm. Tibetan Buddhist area like uh, uh, Tawang in Arunachal Pradesh has been mentioned as a possible place, um, or Nepal or in the Tibetan exile community. Uh, but in any event, so we'll end up with two rival Dalai Lamas. But the thing that I find really interesting, and this is one of the things that occurred to me as I was reading this book, is that when the two groups use the terms, they're using them in very different ways. So for a Tibetan Buddhist, for a person, say, when the 15th Dalai Lama is recognized, for that choice to be legitimate, there has to be a conviction that that person has inherited the consciousness of Tenzin Gyatso. But the Chinese mm-hmm. Communist Party is materialist, so they don't believe in reincarnation, which means that they can't make that claim. So when they appoint somebody and give that person the, the title Dalai Lama, uh, he, and they've made it very clear, it will have to be a man. Uh, he will be, uh, it will be like, say, naming somebody postmaster. So it's simply a title that the government has the prerogative to, uh, to give to someone. But it doesn't mean anything beyond that. Whereas for Tibetans, in order to have conviction in the authenticity of the process, there has to be a sense that, or a belief that, uh, and and in a sense, proof that uh, the standard traditional process of vetting has taken place, and that it's been determined through a variety of means that this person does, in fact, have the reincarnated consciousness of Tenzin Gyatso. So presumably from, from the Chinese side, um, it wouldn't necessarily have to be a child who they appointed as. as well, they will appoint a child just right. in order to give the appearance of following the traditional uh, system. So mm-hmm. they will mm-hmm. uh, get compliant lamas to um, to convene, and they will name somebody. And, and like with the pension lama, it will probably be someone who is uh, the child of Communist Party cadres. And the reason for that is that people who belong to the Communist Party can be coerced to let their child be used in this arcane game. And it might be more difficult for people who are outside of that uh, to be coerced in that way. So it will probably be someone, a child born to Communist Party cadres, probably an ethnic Tibetan, probably in the Tibetan Autonomous Region, although it's possible it might be in another Tibetan um, uh, Autonomous Prefecture. But uh, they will then uh, have a ceremony that will have some elements of past ceremonies, but the Chinese government in the past has not really done a very good job of reenacting these ceremonies, so they've been full of historical inaccuracies and, and even ludicrous elements. So, But in the end, they will have a, a Dalai Lama, they will have a Pension Lama, who they officially designate as having these titles, but Tibetans, of course, won't view them as actually having the reincarnated consciousness of their predecessors, and the Chinese government won't even make that claim. Hmm. Yeah, so it sounds like they're they're operating on, on totally different systems then. Yeah. Um, but but doing things that, that, that look similar from the outside. Right, and they're using the same terminology, but the understanding of what the terminology means is completely different. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, so I'm curious, aside from the, the Tulku system and, and the, the reincarnation issues, um, what are some of the other ways that um, the Chinese government is reshaping and, and redefining Tibetan religious practices? Well, the two main focal points of the book for me were 
uh, the, the, a dual program of trying to change the way Tibetans think. One aspect of this is called patriotic education, and the other one is called reinterpreting Tibetan Buddhist doctrines. Uh, patriotic education is something that is broader than Tibet. It's been, it started actually in the, during the Cultural Revolution, and it's uh, basically a propaganda campaign to uh, bombard people with propaganda from all sides to try to change the way that they think. But in Tibet in particular, it's, there's a particular Tibetan version of this um, that's aimed particularly at undermining Buddhism, uh, uh, reliance on Buddhism, faith in Buddhism, and uh, combined with the reinterpretation of Tibetan Buddhist doctrines, uh, this is primarily trying to actually, uh, it's, it's a recognition really that the previous um, program of, uh, of patriotic education hasn't worked very well. During the 2008 demonstrations, uh, most of the monastics who protested cited patriotic education as the most aversive aspect of Chinese rule, and it was the uh, mm -hmm. it was the the uh, the spark that ignited the first protest in Lhasa that started the whole thing going. So there is some recognition on the part of the Chinese that it hasn't been very effective, and part of it is that it's top down. It's it's an outgroup sort of message. So. The reinterpretation program is incorporate well is is forcing Tibetans to become part of the process, and what they say officially is that uh, Tibetan Buddhism has uh, something to offer to uh, Chinese society, and so the goal is to identify doctrines that can be compatible with Chinese socialism. And so they mm -hmm. uh, they claim to be sort of going through Buddhist literature, through you know uh, statements of Buddhists and so forth, to find aspects that are compatible with the Chinese version of socialism, and to preserve those uh, and to convince people that's really what Tibetan Buddhism is and always has been, and that's really what they believe. But the problem is that the people running the the program are Chinese, and so. When you read, there there are five pamphlets now that have come out, and there are two that I've translated with a uh, with a Chinese translator who doesn't want to be named in any of this because he wants to work in China. What we found is that all of these pamphlets contain a a sinicized version of Tibetan Buddhism. So in the opening um, chapters, what they they begin with describing um, what are the core Buddhist texts that all Buddhists, the, the Tibetan Buddhists accept, and most of these are Chinese apocryphal sutras. That of course mm -hmm. Tibetans have never heard of. They're written in Chinese. They're forgeries yeah. uh, that say espouse Confucian or Taoist ideas that um, uh, that praise the Chinese um, imperial system and things like that. So Tibetans have never even heard of these things. They don't exist in Tibetan. Uh, and so these are 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 put forward as normative texts for Tibetan Buddhists that they would accept. And then. Statements about, say, uh, you know, paying your taxes and respecting the emperor and so forth should now be uh, transferred to the Communist Party, which, like good, uh, the, the good ruling emperors of the past, uh, is now preserving uh, Tibetan Buddhism and, um, and preserving society. But, of course, it's a very unconvincing argument because all of these texts that they're citing in the doctrines are foreign to Tibetans because they've never even heard of them. Um, but it is interesting, though, that for the first time, they're actually trying to involve Tibetans in this. And so, for instance, in one of the, the book uh, pamphlets that I translated, there's um, um, a, a very detailed discussion of the Vinaya, clearly written by a, a, a monk uh, or a nun, I suppose. But probably, you know, the way it was written is probably by a monk. Uh, there's another one that um, talks about um, uh, epistemology uh, in, in, again, you know, very accurate sort of terms. 
it's not, these aren't central to the book, and they sort of stand as outliers in the overall message, which is primarily about Tibetans changing their views. Uh, but it was interesting to see that there were clearly some Tibetans involved in this process. And although the core chapters, the ones that are, you know, that put forward the government's view, are, are obviously written by Chinese and would not resonate with Tibetans, it's interesting that for the first time, they are actually trying to get Tibetans involved in this process rather than simply, simply lecturing at them and uh, telling them to change their minds. Yeah. Yeah. The, um, the, the interpreting Tibetan Buddhist doctrines um, that, that you talk about in the book, I found it really weirdly fascinating. <laughs> That's a good name for it because <laughs> on the one hand, they, they really do believe that Tibetans are going to buy into this and they have television uh, programs that, that air every week in which uh, they force monastics to join in what are supposed to be conversations uh, in which they take seriously this idea that Chinese socialism actually means something and that Tibetan Buddhist doctrines are compatible with it and what sorts of doctrines might be compatible with Chinese socialism, what they call socialism with Chinese characteristics, which of course isn't socialism at all. Uh, and that's mm -hmm. another trope mm -hmm. that I find very interesting in, in modern China the phrase with Chinese characteristics after something basically means it's the, the exact opposite of what the, the term really means. And yet for Chinese, they, <laughs> when it's used by Western commentators on China, it's always used ironically. And I've never seen a Chinese who saw the irony of it. Yes. Really? So when they use that term huh. with Chinese characteristics, they really believe that there is something special about China. And so when they do socialism, it really is socialism, even though it's basically market capitalism with an authoritarian government. Wow. <laughs> so, 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 um, I mean, the, the, the Tibetans who, who, it, it, I mean, it looks like there's been some Tibetan involvement in, in creating some of these, uh, pamphlets and, and brochures and booklets and things. And I know you, you said a little bit earlier that on the whole, this propaganda is not really that effective, um, in swaying Tibetan opinion, but is it having any effect, do you think? None that I can see. And again, the problem is still that these are perceived as outgroup messages. The, uh, the body that is, um, in, that has been put in charge of this program is the China Tibetology Research Center, which is in Beijing, and it's run by Han Chinese. So there are Tibetans there, but most of the Chinese that run it don't seem to actually know much about Tibet. Uh, it's very common for Chinese mm -hmm. academics who claim to be Tibetologists to not actually read Tibetan. Uh, and many of them have never even been to Tibet. Uh, so what it, the work they do comes entirely from Chinese sources in many cases. And so it's not surprising that it's very unconvincing because when the Tibetans, when Tibetans talk to them, they had to speak in Chinese to people who clearly don't know much about their tradition. So while the attempt is to make it seem less of an outgroup message and less imposed from top down, it still is very much like that. And the center itself is based in Beijing, not, for instance, in Lhasa. And it's run by Han Chinese and not by Tibetans. Uh, so mm -hmm. what they're trying to do in one sense is, is a bit of a strategic change, but it's not enough of a change to, I think, really uh, be effective in the end. So it seems like a, a lot of a lot of effort for maybe not that much. That's work. what I've seen so far. I uh, The Tibetans that I talked to were largely unaware of it. They do know that there is a, a regular television program that airs uh, weekly, uh, in which monks are forced to endorse this program of reinterpreting Tibetan Buddhist doctrines. But I haven't found anybody who really knows what the content is or could explain it to me. 
Uh, so it doesn't seem to be having any effect. I mean, they know that it's there, but they see it as just one more um, Chinese attempt to change the way they think that is unconvincing. Well, so, uh, I mean, you, you've mentioned a couple times the, the, the most recent mass protests in Tibet in, in uh-huh. 2008. Um, have, have things changed significantly since those last protests? They have. It's become even more oppressive than it was. Uh, I tried to get into Tibet in 2008. I actually first went to Dharamsala, and uh, I was there when the protest broke out. So I was getting a lot of uh, uh, firsthand information, um, largely with the Kirti monk, uh, the monks of Kirti Monastery. And so I was following events on the ground. They were getting a lot of information being sent largely by mobile phones. Uh, and so they were getting updates every, in some cases, every 10 minutes, every hour, or every couple of hours. And they were getting images, photographs, and so forth. And so I, my plan had been to spend some time in Darmstadt. I was not expecting demonstrations. It completely upset everything. And then I had a, v- a visa to go to China, and I was going to go to Tibet. But when I got to China, uh, by that time, Tibet had been closed and everybody had been tossed out. So there was no way to get any closer than Kumbu Monastery and to some peripheral areas around there. But then I went back a couple of years after that, uh, and I did a trip to central and eastern Tibet, and, uh, and then I went back a couple of years after that to, to Western Tibet uh, and to Lhasa, and I found that it was even more oppressive than it had been in the past. Um, in, uh, in Lhasa, the, the whole landscape has been changed. Like, for instance, around the Barkor, the most popular pilgrimage site, they have cleared out a lot of the old alleyways, and they've created these straight lines uh, of, of, uh, that give uh, snipers straight lines of sight down the roadways. Um, they have surveillance everywhere. Uh, there were undercover um, people as well as uniformed um, uh, soldiers all over the place. Uh, there's, uh, there was an army barracks right at the, at the outside of that area. Um, the surveillance the, and the military presence was, very, was, was, was obviously meant to impress people with this pervasiveness. And, when, and even in very remote areas of western Tibet, there was a police checkpoint at least every hour of travel. And what I found was that they weren't checking Westerners' uh, papers at all. It was only Tibetans. So Tibetans are basically mm-hmm. under house arrest in a sense. Um, Tibetans are, are required to stay in their hometowns. And in order to leave, they had to have special written permission. Uh, so the checkpoints were primarily to make sure the Tibetans weren't, weren't traveling, weren't leaving their hometowns. Okay, so it's basically become a large gulag um, with sort of small cells in each each town, each prefecture, and so forth, that prevent Tibetans from traveling, from meeting other Tibetans, and and so forth. So it really uh, and and also the military presence was much uh, lar- was much more pervasive, even than when I went there the first time in 1988, which was after another series of demonstrations. The the soldiers are everywhere. There are machine gun emplacements on street corners. At least there were when I was there. Uh, there were military patrols uh, all at all hours of the day, um, armored vehicles in the streets. And this was years after the demonstrations. Um, so it's still seen very much as a restive area that requires constant surveillance. Another thing that's very interesting in this is, uh, particularly in eastern Tibet, where uh, most of the self-immolations have happened. There are now over 150 self-immolations. Um, there are pat- uh, police patrols uh, in all the major cities. And they all walk around with uh, fire extinguishers. Really? Really? Fire extinguishers wow. at uh, most public places in, in cities in eastern Tibet uh, because they, uh, it's, it's such a big thing. Uh, it's such a big phenomenon. And there's also very restrictive policies keeping Tibetans from getting uh, gasoline and kerosene and other flammable liquids. 
So that's uh, they're they're trying to legislate flammable liquids away to, so that they're out of the hands of Tibetans, so they can't get hold of them. Wow, wow! So it sounds like um, it's almost. I mean, based on the 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 actions that have been taken, I mean, it, it sounds like there's there's kind of an acknowledgement that this propaganda isn't really working. Yes, uh, in official statements, they will say that it's it's uh, the Tibetans love the Chinese, that they're happy under Chinese rule and so forth. But it's very clear that they have realized that the propaganda hasn't worked. And they're searching for other ways of doing this. Um, uh, and it's interesting because they don't really, there's a, a basic lack of understanding. So one of the things that I found particularly striking, I was, I was watching the, uh, the progress of the coverage during the 2008 demonstrations. And once they suppressed them and they started having public show trials, the most common charge that I saw was uh, people were being charged with acts of ingratitude. Acts yes, of acts of gratitude, because the Tibetans huh. should be grateful to the Chinese for all the benefits they brought, for them being liberated from feudal serfdom and so forth. And so for many Chinese, and this is something that I see not just among Chinese in China, but overseas Chinese, a lot of Chinese students that I talk to, are flabbergasted and really annoyed that Tibetans don't realize how lucky they are and how, how fortunate they are to have been liberated by the Chinese and how grateful they should be. And so it's considered to be, um, you know, they, they regard it as, as outrageous that the Tibetans aren't thanking them. Or, and they should just be spontaneously bursting into yes, song yeah. and dance. Yes, and, and, and that's, of course, what they do in, <laughs> in China. They, they, they provide entertainment for the Han, and that's what they should be doing, because, of course, they're not really going to do much of anything else because they're, they're regarded as economically unproductive. But they can at least entertain the Han through song and dance. It's <laughs> the least they could do. <laughs> And they should be grateful wow. for you know for being wow. given this this great opportunity to entertain them, and to be uh, to be given mm -hmm. you know economic benefits and so forth. Well, so do you think? I mean, after after this book has come out, do you think that you will ever be allowed to go back to? Tibet? That's a good question. Um, I wrote a book in two thousand four on on propaganda called History is Propaganda, and it was widely reviewed and widely discussed and. I was invited to the Chinese embassy on a number of occasions when I was in Canberra, probably at least 15 times. And they knew full well what my work was. They mentioned my work and how they disagreed with it and so forth. But they also assured me that I would get a visa if, if I applied. And every time I've applied, I've, I've received one. So I don't know. This book might tip them over the edge or it might not. I, I suspect that I'm probably not important enough yet. Uh, for them to really care what I say, <laughs> and that as long as I, my books are published by Oxford University Press and discussed by academics, it probably isn't important enough that they really need to take notice of me. Uh, but you never know. I, I know people who have um, been uh, um, detained. Uh, the late Elliot Sperling, for instance, um, went to Beijing a few years ago, shortly before he died, and he was pulled out of the line coming into the airport in Beijing, and uh, interrogated for a couple of hours and then put back on a plane and, and sent back to the United States. And he mentioned that the soldier who was interrogating him uh, told him that he had no, uh, no right to be in China. And he showed him the visa that he had received from the Chinese embassy. And so the soldier took a, a, a red marker and put a big X across it. And so Elliot posted this on his um, webpage. He called it his China Human Rights Award. Robbie Barnett was in Canberra at the time when we were talking, and we decided that, that he was living the dream for a Tibetologist. 
to become important <laughs> enough that they would actually, you know, sort of publicly throw you out of the country uh, as persona non grata. But most of us never attained that right, status. I so El Elliot um, did well to, to, to get to that point. The other thing is, uh, this is actually quite interesting. <laughs> there have been people who have been officially banned from China. And what they found to their surprise is that it's not really a ban. It's sort of like an official thing. But, uh, for instance, there was a, a book that was published about 10 years ago on, on uh, the question, some of the Chinese uh, official dogmas about Qing history. And it was an academic book. It was all done in, in sort of academic format and so forth. But um, the because it questioned dogmas, it was sort of it was sent to a Chinese academic, and you can never go wrong if you're a Chinese academic slamming foreigners. So he made a big deal about how the foreigners were insulting China, and and, um, and the book was banned, and all the people involved in it were banned. But then I read something in the New York Times a couple of years later where some of the authors said when they first heard this, they were very concerned because they're Sinologists and they need to go to China regularly. And they found that they weren't actually banned. They still got visas, even though they were officially on the banned list. Wow. So, and, and uh, the other thing I found is that if you go to China and then you go, for instance, to um, a, a, a place away from the center like Chengdu or Hong Kong, it's usually pretty straightforward. You just apply for a visa and you get it, and the next day you, you can you can take off. So there doesn't seem to be a lot of the same sort of level of awareness of foreigners or communication um, in some of these more remote areas. So even if you're banned, you don't necessarily not get to go to China anymore. So you could still you could still aspire to your uh, your your human rights award and and still be able to figure out ways. To yes, that, that, that. that's my plan. So I, I can sort of post <laughs> my human rights award on my Facebook page, and then secretly apply uh, for a visa and hope that they'll let me in. That sounds like a good plan. Well, so John, I have one just one last question for you. Um, what are you working on now? Uh, my main current project. Well, I have actually two current projects. Uh, one that I'm I might find out about today whether it's going to be funded or not. But the first project that I'm working on is an epistemological project. Uh, I'm working with Jay Garfield, Jose Cabazon, Douglas Duckworth, Sonam Takchim, Geshe Yeshi Tapke, and Kepo Tashi Sering, and Thomas Doctor. And we're looking at a debate uh, over the two truths that started in the 15th century in Tibet, uh, started primarily by Daksang Lhotsao, who was a Sagipa. And it continues to resonate today, and the Gilupas continue to deal with some of the issues that were raised in this. And so we're looking at the, the text that Daksang wrote, and then the Gilupa responses, and then how that's played out in other debates that are related to this in Tibet. That's great. That and the other amazing. one, which I'm going to hopefully find out about today, um, is a project that I put in with the Australian Research Council to do uh, an environmental history of Tibetan rivers. Uh, because, because Tibet oh, wow. is uh, really ground zero for climate change. Uh, the rivers that, rivers that begin in Tibet supply water to 85% of Asia's populations, and the glaciers at their headwaters are shrinking at three times the global rate, and nobody knows why. And temperatures on the plateau are rising at a much higher rate than, than the rest of the world, and nobody knows why. And so the goal of this project is to bring together a group of scientists and historians and social scientists to combine our resources, to get as much data as we can to uh, develop an environmental history of Tibet. And that will be a comparator for what's happening today. Uh, the focus would be on the Arlong Sangbo River. 
And so we'd be doing history of what the river was like in the past. And uh, so the scientists would be doing, for instance, sediment studies and studies of water quality and water flow. We'll have a dendrologist, uh, somebody who works on tree rings. Um, we'll have a palynologist, somebody who works on pollen, doing pollen samples and glaciers and so forth. And then we'll be doing oral histories with the social scientists. Uh, Jillian Tan, one of my colleagues at Deakin, will be the, the main person on that. And Ruth Gamble, who was really the person who came up with this, uh, the original uh, idea in the first place, who is now at La Trobe University, uh, will also be working on the oral history aspect and on the contemporary history aspect. So that uh, we're, I put in um, a grant with, with this team. Uh, we have, again, scientists and historians. Um, we have people in Germany. We have people in the United States who are all involved in this. And the Australian Research Council has traditionally, uh, over the last five years or so, announced grant success, uh, grant up, um, uh, outcomes on Melbourne Cup Day, which is today. <laughs> So, so the hope is that they will tell us today and we'll get the money and then we'll start working uh, after we find out about it. That, that sounds that sounds exciting. I love hearing about what you're doing because you're always doing so many different things. Um, it's it's really it's really exciting to hear. Well, that's been my goal because I want I, I don't want to just do one thing. Uh, there's something to be said for getting immersed in one area and becoming an expert on it and just doing that. For, for me, that'd be really boring. So I started doing philosophy, and I still do philosophy. I published a book on Dignaga's Alambada Pariksha investigation of the percept with a group of people, uh, including Jay Garfield and Douglas Duckworth and Sinem Takcha and so forth, um, David Eckel. Um, and that was a fun project, and I'm continuing to do that sort of project, but I'm also doing things like propaganda or environmental studies and that sort of thing. So I like, I like, I like going into an area where I'm, I'm, I'm incompetent, like say for environmental history and getting up to speed. And then over the course of say maybe four or five or six years, learning enough about the field to publish something worth publishing and then maybe go on to something else. I like the challenge of being incompetent. Well, (laughs) I think you're far from incompetent with a lot of this, (laughs) a lot of this stuff that you've published. Thank you. I appreciate that. Well, I want to thank you for, for taking the time to, uh, to talk with us today. And I mean, we talked a little bit about your book and we talked a lot about, a bunch of other stuff. So, um, so that was that was great. Uh, I, I really well, it's been fun. It. I've enjoyed talking to you. All right, great. Well, great. well, thanks a lot. That was John Powers, author of The Buddha Party: How the People's Republic of China Works to Define and Control Tibetan Buddhism, published by Oxford University Press in 2016. You can find out about more new books in Buddhist studies and other academic fields by visiting newbooksnetwork.com or by searching for New Books Network wherever you get your podcasts.